Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Harshini, Beth and I spoke with Ved Krishna, strategy head at Yashpaka, an Indian-based paper manufacturing company which uses agricultural sugarcane waste for creating its products. In 2017, Ved launched Chuck, an offshoot of the Yashpaka company which specialises in providing 100% home compostable tableware and packaging solutions. We thoroughly enjoyed chatting to Ved about how he draws inspiration from biomimicry in searching for innovative solutions. As always, we started by asking Ved to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. My name is Ved. Uh, I am part of a company called Yesh Packer, and uh, we make compostable packaging. Uh, all our packaging is uh, made from sugarcane residue. So what uh, the fibers that are left uh, after you squeeze the juice out of sugarcane to make sugar. We take those waste fibers and we make uh, different products, uh, paper oriented products for making bags and then molded products uh, for making compostable tableware, which is uh, used for food services. Um, we do that. Uh, apart from that, uh, we produce all our own electricity uh, from biomass. So we are actually not even on the grid and we recover almost 95% of our chemicals. So, so that's what we are trying to do. And our hope, wish, uh, desire and work is towards uh, trying to leave the planet cleaner uh, by ensuring that we produce numerous substitutes uh, for compostable packaging and also then work towards ensuring that uh, it actually goes into the composting site. So that's uh, basically what we do. And could you maybe tell us a bit more about yourself and your role in your company and um, you know how you got there? Uh, so my father actually started the company back in 1981. So it's been there for a while. I was not interested in the company at all. And uh, it was a pulp and paper, small pulp and paper manufacturing company. Um, but I was doing my private pilot's license and flying normally used to happen early, early in the morning. And I was uh, 18 years old and I had no money in my pocket. And there weren't that many job opportunities there. So I went to my father and I said, you know, like, can I get a job? And he said, yeah, sure. So I reached there the next day after my flying and um, I was asked to clean drains. So I cleaned drains and I unloaded trucks and did the operation shifts uh, for a while. So it was almost uh, about two years is uh, what, what I kept doing things like that for. So I had enough of a background uh, and understanding of the business. Uh, and I worked there about three years. And then I went to university to like you guys in England, in London. And uh, I was uh, all set to work towards adventure sports. So I was doing a degree in sports management and tourism. And um, yeah, so that, that domain. And then uh, uh, my father, who was really uh, the the, the, he's the one who started the business and he really loved the business. He had this change of heart and he didn't want any of the business. And he said, I don't, uh, I don't want, want to do other things. So we, my brother and I, my brother's younger than me. Uh, we asked him, uh, he asked both of us and we both of us said, no, we are not interested. So he kept trying to sell the business, but it wouldn't sell at that point. 
and we saw that anguish and i decided that i want to go back and i started working in the summers and then i eventually ended up going back thinking that okay at least i can relieve my father and he can go and do his thing and if somebody has to sell it i can sell it and you know that that will be that and he interestingly he just wanted to spend the rest of his life on a motorcycle so he took his motorcycle and started traveling the world and uh, i came in and i started faffing about and did a lot of mistakes lots of poor investments lots of mistakes lots of money lost and uh, but kept growing the company we went through some financial turmoil uh it grew as a specialty paper company um and we mainly focus, focused at that point on food and pharmaceutical applications so all the mcdonald bags uh, in india were still are probably our product most of the soap wrappers and things like that but what i realized over time was that although we were producing an interesting product the end usage was never in our control it was it was always it was you know covered with plastic or aluminum or something or the other and going uh, and not really helping the packaging world as we saw it so slowly by 2012 we decided to turn the company and make it into more focused compostable packaging development and we started working in domains of bags flexible packaging which is like potato chip bags and uh, molded products which is styrofoam kind of replacement what i do there is basically i realize that i'm really bad at business over time well i should have known that uh, while back but i fired myself a few years back from operations and uh, so my role is mainly strategy innovations um products and expansion and direction so so you know so that's the basic role we have much better people than me who run the business so we have uh, ceos for two different operations three different operations now and um, and they are much better than me in running the business so yeah so harshini that's more or less what i do at what what point did you go from i'm just kind of taking care of this business until i sell it or until someone else can take it off my hands to actually i'm going to make this into something of my own and take it in your own direction that's that's actually a superb question with because uh, so so i i and i of course i went there with that thought that you know we'll see what happens interestingly when i reached there the business was in a mess because uh, because my father had lost interest about 4 5 years back so he was just basically trying to do the rounds just going there doing his thing but not really enjoying it so he had handed it over to the people that he had and at that point we didn't have very competent people and uh, as things would have it and i know siren has spent time in india we get into politics very quickly so the company had dilapidated into being uh, in a place where there was uh, more uh, sort of uh, a lot of unionism and politics etc so for 2 years and i was a 24 year old guy when i reached there and uh, for 2 years they basically tested me so so it was drama full full on so but in 2 years they realized that this boy is not just going to leave and he's going to keep pushing back and so things started falling in line so and then we started seeing big dreams and we grew the company almost four times of the size it was in the next uh, few years uh but like i was telling before there was a lot of decisions that we took on hindsight they were absolutely ludicrous and sort of decisions that we took and uh and the company went into a lot of financial turmoil 
Um, and uh, that that was the other point when I actually thought, what am I doing here? You know, I don't really want to do this from the beginning. And I've just ended up here. And, you know, let me find something else. Let me try and sell it off. So this was around 2011, 12. Interestingly, as the universe does, uh, I met one of my mentors then and he taught me four very interesting things. And I think this is important for you guys because you are at a stage of life and you're going to be building towards the future. And I think that changed my life entirely. The first thing uh, he taught me was uh, that you have to build on what you've created. You can keep thinking that, you know, you're going to take these couple of years off, going go into the Himalayas and meditate there and find your Shambhala, but that doesn't really happen. You know, there is something that you've accumulated till now. You have to build on top of that. So, so that was very interesting for me. The second was that your, you, you, your purpose, your meaning in life is actually never about yourself. And it is always about what you can do to contribute to the life of others. And that is what is going to create uh, deep happiness. Uh, the third was that you cannot let your thoughts restrict you. So, you know, you have to be able to think a thousand X uh, to be able to create a larger impact on the universe. I'm forgetting the fourth. So that's, let's, let's leave it at three. But I thought that those were very important uh, realizations for me. And I realized that I wanted to, so, so my wife asked me, if you were given an absolutely free hand and uh, you didn't have any restrictions, what would you do? So, and I, I would keep coming back and thinking, huh, I would do something with nature. And uh, then I realized, you know, we are the biggest issue today with the ecology is packaging and we are in there and we are doing nothing about it. So we are using up a lot of resources to produce it and we are producing something that gets, gets into uh, situations where it's not, you know, giving any benefit. So, so that is the point when uh, I did, we decided that we're going to shift towards creating more meaning and impact. Uh, and I think uh, from that point on, it's not been, it's, I've woken up every morning and said, oh, let's go, let's do this today. Again, another beautiful day. So, so that's been, that's, that was probably the cusp. Uh, that's it, you know, we have our ups and downs. And uh, at some points you think, oh, that's a great offer that is on the table. Uh, we recently were asked by one of the big investment bankers uh, that, you know, would we like to sell? So we actually turned around and said, we are in the buying business, not the selling business. So we don't look at, you know, so if you have something to sell, let's, let's talk about it. But that's the kind of place we are in now. But yeah, that, that was a good question. I wanted to ask a little bit about the products themselves, obviously. Um, they're compostable. Um, so I wondered if there's like a difficulty posed by making like long life compostable packaging and what do you think is like the solution there? So the first thing I think is to understand what is the difference between biodegradable, compostable and home compostable. And sometimes we mix all of those as consumers. So a biodegradable substance is anything that can break down into benign constituents, which means that they won't, they won't be beneficial or harmful to the earth. The second is a compostable substance that will break down and help the soil or the, or, or the earth, but it'll typically break down in controlled conditions. So it'll be 60 degrees Celsius uh, temperature and about you know 80% moisture. So that's the typical control condition that uh, composting sites work on. Mm -hmm. And the third is backyard compostable, where if you throw it in the backyard, the natural 
moisture, earth, microorganisms will enable it to break down. Now, what we create is basically from cellulosic fibers, which is what goes into paper, um, which is we take it from sugarcane waste. Um, so, so if you look, go back to your libraries, there's going to be paper lying there from 500 years back even. Probably the earliest Bible is, you know, whatever, uh, some thousand, over thousand years old. So if you keep it in a shape like that, it continues. The question is when it's exposed to natural elements, then how quickly does it break down? So in our case, we work on only backyard compostable products because we don't know if there's going to be a site for composting or not. So if it's just littered even, Till it's littered in you know some soil conditions, it'll it'll disintegrate eventually. Typically, our products would disintegrate between if thrown outside, not on the shelf, thankfully. Uh, but uh, but they would disintegrate between sixty and ninety days. So that's the typical time. I hope I answered your question yeah. well, Sarah. And uh, just following up from that question, have you had any like feedback from your customers, from your users, in terms of whether they actually use it? Um, as compost after having used the packaging? Or is this a sort of like a follow-up cycle where you kind of find out or know what happens after you've sold the product? I wish that was the case, Harshini, and that would be music for us. But no, that's not the case. Most people in our current economic system, we do a lot of greenwashing and uh, it makes people feel good. So one of the tendencies I have is that whenever I go to a quick service restaurant that's using our products, I always peep into the dustbins. So, so the trash cans. And typically, as you would expect, there would be those uh, seven or eight products out of 10, which would be compostable. But then in the same trash can, there would be a couple of products, either plastic or plastic lined. And that basically means that it's not going to a composting site. It'll be given to the same. So, so, but what we realize is it's sort of one step at a time. We cannot try and do everything together. And we have our own karmic obligation. So our karmic obligation is to produce substances that are compostable. So we want to maximize on that. Uh, but that said, if we keep maximizing on that and it still just goes into a landfill or a land dump, then it's just going to create methane, which doesn't help anybody. So, so, so yeah, so the, the effort would be to create good products and then work towards composting. So what we've decided this year is that we also realize that even if we try our utmost, there's only that little difference that we'll be able to make because the size of the pile is so huge. It's un unbelievable. So, so what we've decided is that we're going to spend a lot of time and energy in creating a forum called Global Compostables Alliance to try and get all the compostable packaging industry together to enable innovation, to enable investment, to enable knowledge sharing, et cetera, et cetera, and also policy advocacy. Um, along with that, what we are going to try and do is what you are talking about, try and see how we can enable the closing of the loop to happen by changing policy. Number one, there are certain countries that have, so I was talking to Seren and uh, I, that's what I said. My dream is that, you know, the municipality only has a single trash can where only compostables go. That should be the role of the government. Everything else should be repurposed. Uh, so, 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 you know, so, so that would be the dream that you have your food waste and you have your packaging waste. All of it is compostable and it goes into one bag. And that's what the municipality does. So that is the effort we are going to be making in the coming times. Our focus will remain compostable packaging. But through this forum, 
hopefully there's going to be more education and uh, advocacy that will happen. I think it was very interesting when you mentioned that, you know, the, the people have the product that can be, um, you know, composted, but then they're still throwing it in the main trash. Do you think, I think, in my opinion, it's probably, it probably comes from a mindset kind of problem where people don't see the need to uh, reuse the product or to compost the product. Um, what do you think can be done about that? And also, uh, I know like your main market is in India, but you're also in the US at the moment. So do you see like a difference in mindset when it comes to like sustainability and that kind of thing between the two countries? And how would we bridge that? So I don't think that the issue is as simplistic as that. Um, I don't think I don't think people have the intention of creating damage typically, but composting itself is complex. It's not that simple. So if I'm if I'm a person running the restaurant, I want to focus on my business, which is making food and serving food, uh, and and hopefully go a step further and ensure that you know whatever food I serve, I serve in something which is more renewable, more sustainable. So that's the steps I have taken. Now, composting is a totally different uh, ball game, and it takes time. It takes certain amount of understanding. Uh, normally, restaurants and where, where you know these things are used are in urban locations. Typically, it's very difficult to compost there. What what we can do is we get huge machines, uh, which are composting machines. But typically what they do is they actually don't compost. They just break it down into small parts. You still have to take it to a composting site. And, you know, the, the time that nature takes, you have to give it that time. So it's typically um, a minimum of 14 days to at least 28 days. So I would say uh, one moon cycle is at least uh, something that's taken by nature in the right conditions to be able to compost it. So I think the systemic shift needs to happen rather than expecting that restaurants or homeowners like us, uh, not all of us are going to start composting. There'll be few crazy people like Seren who would, you know, start thinking that, you know, I don't want to compost at home. But again, you know, even if you compost, where are, do you have the place to use it? You know, where are you going to, do you have enough of a, because you can like even as a person in the US who is uh, composting at home and I don't have enough of yard space to con consume all my compost. Of course, we can keep piling it and it won't harm. Uh, but, but you know, there has to be enough space to consume it. So I think it has to be a systemic shift. Uh, when you talk about the comparison uh, between US and India, I'm just amazed at the US. The amount of packaging is almost, I thought we were consuming a lot of packaging in India. And US is 10x. It's just crazy. Like the quantum of packaging that is actually done. Uh, and I don't think it's just convenience, convenience, convenience. So certain things don't need to be in packaging. Certain things can be in bulk packaging. Certain things, uh, you know, you don't need to put in plastic at all. You could put in other other substances. But it's just so much packaging. I'm just amazed at the, even the re my recycling bin and my compost bin are both full every week, even as a as a conscious consumer who avoids packaging. If I order online, there's going to be all sorts of mayhem. If I go and buy something, it's going to be uh, craziness. So there's a huge difference, but that said, at least the collection systems are better. So you don't see it. So it's taken somewhere where it is either composted, recycled or incinerated. 
many of that is a, has its own issues. Incineration, for example, has huge issues. But okay, at least it's out of sight and similar in UK. But uh, but, you know, the challenge remains. And in India, of course, the bigger challenge is the collection system, the governance. So it's all littered, which has its own damages. And of course, uh, plant life and marine life and animal life is all affected. One thing that always sort of winds me up is when um, they'll have like a sort of cereal bar package and then they'll have like a little hole cut out and they've got plastic in that hole. When if they just made the hole a little bit smaller... You could have the the same thing and no no plastic at all, and it's kind of that these little shifts that don't actually need so much effort. There needs to be some government intervention to get companies to do that because they won't do it by themselves. Yeah, so it has to be a mix of regulation and systemic change. And you're right. There's there's a lot of things that can be done just to lightweight, like you were saying. You know, why does the window needs to need to be that big? Why does it need to be plastic at all? You can get a, a you can get a PLA, a polylactic acid film. So it just costs a little bit more. But in the scheme of things, it's not that much more. So so you know, but it's that conscious effort, and sometimes that conscious effort comes from governance and statutory norms. Uh, basically because we are in a very competitive world. So so if I make a shift, for example, all our products are packaged in a bioplastic, a PLA, a polylactic acid, which is a compostable film. Uh, but it costs us 3x the money uh, of, a, of a plastic film. So our board of directors is normally aghast that we do that. But we, like, we, we, we cannot possibly package in plastic. That will just hurt our soul. So, so we do that anyways, but when, we, when it comes to pure economics, because others are not doing it, it doesn't make sense. If others are doing it, it has, because cost is always a comparative uh, aspect. It's never in isolation. So when you say this is costly, what you mean is this is costlier than something else. If that was the only way to do it, then it would become immaterial. Although if there was like a carbon tax or something associated with worse products, products which are worse for the environment, that would make a financial incentive to use maybe more compostable products. So potentially that could be the solution, but getting governments to put those policies in place is always so difficult. But yeah, to go back to the packaging and the products themselves, um, I wanted to ask if you've had any difficulties with particular, like creating particular alternatives to traditional packaging um, and where is like the most com- complex kind of solutions um, been? That's actually very interesting for us because that's what I do most of the days. So, so what happens is that uh, we are typically trying to uh, answer for convenience, cost, aesthetics, um, shelf life. You know, there are various attributes which one needs to answer, uh, answer for. Uh, I was once pushing the idea of... Uh, we, we had created a paper plus some sort of uh, coating on it, uh, which was relatively okay um, to another huge uh, manufacturer of, of, of packager, pack, packaging and manufacturing of food products. And he actually taught me a great thing. He said, you must realize that the, the dharma of packaging is to protect my products. Because if you don't protect my products, then I'm creating a bigger damage. You know, if I'm packaging potato chips, there is a farmer who's utilizing water, soil, etc., energy to produce that those potatoes. Then those potatoes are taken, sorted, and, and transported somewhere else where they again, water is used, they are washed, they are 
they are sort of uh, segregated they are dissected they are then you know converted to a another form potato chips or whatever and then you're packaging it so if my food goes bad because your packaging is not perfect then you've created a bigger environmental damage which was something which was a revelation for me uh so there is a complex amount of things that go into in- ensuring that the packaging is right uh of course convenience is a big part of it we, all of us just want to pick up something and go and in an ideal world i would say uh as somebody who's quite conscious of the food i intake that ideally don't eat anything out of a package that's the ideal world as soon as you do that the, you will be healthy and the planet will definitely get healthier so so but that won't happen right all of us are so used to picking up that cheetos bag and snacking on it or whatever um so so what so let's talk about one product in particular like a snack bag uh, potato chips or crackers or whatever uh typically what happens is that when you open that bag even if you guys open it 6 months after it has been manufactured how is it going to smell probably the same as day one it's probably going to taste as crispy uh of course there are food scientists that are working on the exact taste that you're going to get so that you want more and more of it so so you know so you're going to probably have the exact same experience as you would have had 6 months prior when it was actually made so of course the packaging is totally sealing it off from moisture and from any air ingress uh in order to create that packaging people have worked really hard over time to be able to create multiple layers because a singular layered substance cannot create that so typically what you'll see is that there's a metalized film with probably three different kinds of plastics and uh, a layer of some aluminum kind of metal on it it's that's why it's that silvery color and uh, that has enabled it to be uh water resistant or moisture resistant oxygen resistant and heat sealable so those three things um what they have created is a marvel of engineering uh but it's also something that cannot be recycled composted or you know done anything with so this this film is now going to last over 100000 years so if you look at it we say plastic a typical plastic bag would last 500 years who really knows the first plastic bag was created just 70 years back so that bugger has still 430 years to go so so you know you can imagine and this they are talking about 100000 years because that's the way it's been created to last a long time what we realize is that the answers these are complex substances that have been created for convenience and the answers actually lie in nature so if we look at packaging all around us it's amazing if you just open your eyes and start noticing you uh, you notice that pomegranate or you notice uh, that pea or peanut or coconut or egg or your own skin you know it breathes nothing goes out things don't go in and it's just functional so what we've started doing is doing a lot of work around the idea of freely learning from nature and what the packaging also does in nature every packaging it's multifunctional it's not a unifunctional packaging it can protect it can breathe it can you know do different musculature functions etc 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 so so what we are looking at is trying to inverse that problem and trying to see how we can create more multifunctional designs so so we are taking inspirations from numerous things in nature one of the projects that we are just going into is trying to replace exactly the same thing the flexible packaging multi layer film 
uh, with something that doesn't need to be multilayer because still now for the last eight years we're trying to solve the problem in a linear way in the way we see it plastic has been put in different substrates okay let's take paper and put it in different substrates and try and solve it it doesn't get solved and when it gets solved i ask the consumer to pay me three or four times of the price they don't do that they nobody wants to do that till everybody does it so that's the challenge and we can't get everybody to do it for now so so that's the direction we are headed we feel that all the answers for packaging nothing packages like nature all the answers for packaging lie in nature we need to open our eyes we need to see more there is 3.8 billion years of evolution so we have masters out there for packaging and we need to learn and grow and find solutions there so so yeah that's that's the way we are looking at it but again it sounds simpler than it is because you know nature has few building blocks it arranges them in various uh, ways you know they have uh, its proteins and fibers uh, sugars mainly uh, but 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 they but it's complex the molecular structures interesting like the, the the application of biomimicry in packaging is something that i hadn't really thought about before and it's really great it does sound complex actually and um as you might already know like a lot of our listeners are engineers or people who are interested in engineering so um maybe could you tell us a bit more about the process of designing something like that and um who plays a part in that process and whether you have engineers working for you and what kind of approach you use um when it comes to developing a new product like that so a bunch of things there uh, of course i'm glad you mentioned the term biomimicry i did not mention that in particular but i'm glad you guys know about it because that's that's i'm doing a masters in biomimicry and uh, i think there is a lot that has to come out of uh, that field itself um so let me take a step back again if you look at a tree uh, it's amazing that uh, the tree just sequesters carbon from thin air and uh, take some nutrients from the ground below but basically it's that carbon that creates that thick piece of wood you know it's that it's that molecular structure is mainly carbons that that sort of create that so if a tree can photosynthesize itself to create that you know huge bulk of a substance why are we uh, trying to take that tree cut it up and then remove all its parts and then bring them together that's how we create paper and wood and furniture and etc etc So so one of the things that we have looked at in the past is how do you photosynthesize in a lab how do you create the same situation in order to be able to do it not so successfully yet but we haven't given up hope um so that's that's uh, so so what we basically do is we work closely with the the biomimicry institute actually and uh, try and look at uh, inspiration uh, first in nature uh typically the the way we have found it works best is to try it and solve one issue first so if you're trying to solve for moisture we'll just see what in nature uh works well as 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 a as, uh, as an inspiration for repelling or hydrophobicity so so we would look at say lotus leaf or mantle leaves or a uh, water spider uh, web or uh, you know different things different things in nature and what is that going trying to then we try and when we shortlist the uh, the, the inspirations the list of uh, inspirations then we try and see deep patterns within those inspiration it could be very very different it could be an uh, animal and it could be a leaf but there would be deep patterns that would be found you know this is the way it's binding itself 
this is the kind of vaccine substance that is coming along. These are the sort of components, uh, whether again it's collagen or it's uh, uh, sugar or something that is common between these two. Once we find that, then we will go to our to a prototyping stage and how do we create that. And then we'll try and find a source for it. For example, we worked on something um, that was uh, that needed protein. So one of the sources for protein was there was a lot of shells of uh, um, of, of prawns being thrown away in the, in the in, in the fishing industry, and we looked at taking chitin from there. Chitin was what was needed, and we looked at taking chitin from there and trying to then change the form and use it. Uh, didn't work so well commercially. But it was an interesting idea, and at least at lab scale, uh, it sort of worked. The other thing I was, I'm actually really sold on, and I'm super excited about it, back to working on it today as well, uh, is the whole idea of microbial multiplication. So I don't know how much you guys know about it, uh, but there's something called engineered leather now. So what they do is they take a tissue out of an animal, uh, like a cow, so it's just a little tiny bit, and then you ferment it like a wine or a beer. And it self-multiplies. It's microbial. It's bacterial multiplication. The great thing is, so so how would you produce leather or meat, for that matter, for uh, seven billion people and going forward, maybe nine billion people? Uh, it will become a bigger challenge, and of course, it creates all sorts of environmental issues when you're rearing that many animals and killing one billion animals a year uh, to to sort of provide for that. And it also, sadly, what happens is that, you know, uh, cows and crocodiles and snakes or what have you don't come in the shape your purse or shoes or uh, whatever else comes. So, so you have to waste a lot of material, you know, so, so there's a lot of waste that gets created. The process itself is really harmful because you have to dehair the, uh, the, 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 the hide, you have to use tannins to not getting into that bit. It's, it's a long, complex process. So what microbial multiplication is doing is, is trying to get off that whole thing, layer the uh, cells in order to create different substances. You want it thick, you want it thin, you want to have a softer substance, you have a, want to have a harder substance, and then trying to multiply that in a lab. So I'm really excited about that whole domain of DNA multiplication, uh, not DNA change, because that's something I wouldn't get into but uh, but dna multiplication is very interesting where you let as nature does it you just simulate it in a lab and i feel somehow i just have this huge hunch that the answers lie somewhere there because you cannot possibly mimic nature in totality because it's so beautifully complex and it's such a long sort of time it has taken to evolve we are nowhere close you know we are just this tiny part of uh, nature, even if our egos are too big. Uh, but uh, but if we look at letting nature do its work and just, you know, sit there and wait for nature to guide us, then we'll find the answers. So I feel that the answers are somewhere there, uh, working on it, and let us hope we can find a process to be able to do that. That's, that's so fascinating. I didn't know anything about that. But, so you um, should look it up. Should yeah, no, as soon as, as, soon as yeah. we finish recording. There's a wonderful company and there's a TED talk by this guy called Andras Forgax. It's super interesting. And, you know, whoever are the listeners also, I would, you know, there's a uh, something Meadows is his company. But and just look up Andras Forgax on TED. And the other person who's totally amazing is a MIT professor called Neri Oxman. And she is, again, somebody who works in similar domain, but she's also an artist and a designer. 
and uh, absolutely stunning work is is you know both those people are amazing to look at on TED. When you're approaching like a new company and you want them to start using your product, sort of a how do you sell it, and b what are the sticking points that they that keep coming up, like the misconceptions that they have about the product and concerns. So the biggest challenge is always in trying to sell. The biggest challenge is that of price. So, so that's the biggest challenge because you know, uh, typically what happens is that our team would approach the purchase manager in another company. The role of a purchase manager and the way they are assessed is how much cost did they bring down every year. That's what's going to get their bosses happy, right? Their job job is not to innovate. Their job is to reduce the cost. So, if you're getting to the purchase manager, the typical uh, discussion becomes reduction in cost. Uh, without even looking at, I'll give you an example. Uh, this was not even that we were not even trying to convert somebody from a non-compostable substance to a compostable substance. They were just using a very uh, an inferior product, so they were using another competitor's product, uh, but it was a really poorly made product. So when we went into their uh, their, their cafe, we saw that they were having the servers were typically instead of using one tray, they were using three so that it doesn't leak. So we took pictures and took videos and went to the purchase manager and said, look, you know, you may think our product is costly by 20% or something, but you're using 300%. Uh, he said, that's not my job. It's, it's, it doesn't matter because I'm, I, my boss is going to ask me per unit cost. They're not going to ask me how many units you use. So, so the biggest challenge is in purchase managers is, you know, how do you ensure uh, that you actually find a way to get to a decision maker? Most of the time when you get to a decision maker, we've reached that stage where they are definitely thinking at some point, whether it is from a completely brand perspective uh, or from a consciousness perspective, they are definitely thinking about sustainability now which is a good thing, which wasn't even the case maybe three years back, I would say. So, so, which is a, so now we find like we've had various discussions with Burger King and McDonald's and there's huge agendas, but they are big companies. They take a long time to, take, to make their decisions and they have to go through their whole, and, and, and rightly so, they have to go through their whole process. Um, but uh, so the first challenge is price. If you bypass that, then it's performance. So you have to be able to perform. For example, our products have failed really badly in the delivery segment. Uh, so that's a huge market. You know, each time you order food, you get so many plastic boxes. Uh, we tried very hard for three years now to make the right substrate to be able to go there. But what happens is it's a natural product. So so every we are trying to use it like plastic. So in India, they would put a 80 degree hot chicken tikka masala into it and uh, it's gravy, it's oily and you close it. As soon as you close it, the steam will find a way to escape. Uh, and as soon as it does that, because it's a natural porous material, it tends to get the box soggy. Not that the box will collapse, but it won't be a nice experience when the consumer gets it, it's a soggy box. So, so that's something that we failed at uh, terribly. We are still working on finding the right uh, structures uh, in chemistry to be able to do that. To be able to address that uh, market but i would say yeah those two things price and performance would determine our managing to convince the consumer to buy our products 
something that I was thinking of when you were talking about uh, like your customers is that uh, my understanding is that you mostly have customers from big corporations like McDonald's, Burger King. And I know that in India, like street food is really big. You have the most amazing food and stuff. And that's one area where uh, they really use a lot of like single use plastic and non-biodegradable kind of uh, packaging. Is that an area that you've looked into uh, in the past or in, what, what do you think about that? Like music to my ears again. Uh, so we were, we were in a meeting just uh, a month back where we were rethinking the whole marketing uh, process. And our marketing head, rightly so, and she was really happy about this and she said, you know, we are in this really beautiful place. We are considered to be a niche player who provides a very high quality product and we are a cut above the others. And, you know, and anybody who wants a very high quality product, they go for us. What it sounded like to us, to, to me in particular, was that we have sort of segregated ourselves and we feel really happy that we are, we can demand a higher price. So, so actually we turned around and we said, we've lost our plot. You know, if you're saying that, we've actually lost our plot. So we would like to be in that corner shop where they are serving a little sort of little, not even a cart, which is serving street food. And that's where we will make the difference. So if we are not doing that, then we've lost the plot. And we've actually started reorienting our entire product strategy and marketing strategy. You know, looking at lightweighting. How do you make it lighter weight? So we are we are trying to grow the company, the, the molded products division this year by three times. So 300% is the kind of, and all we are looking at is reduce the, reduce the weight, improve the chemistry, reduce the cost, try to get to the, and that's exactly where we want to go. The, the, the street food guy, you know, who's, who's, who's got no option today. They're using this cheap paper plus aluminum or plastic. Uh, and that's what they're doing. So that's what we would like. We don't want to. The McDonald's of the world can solve their own issues. They they have the capacity and they can buy people like us and you know like do it whatever way they want to do it. Ideally, and that's where the most of the litter is going to get created at the street food guy. So actually, we work a lot with McDonald's and Burger King, but we actually find their processes way slower. So we actually end up working a lot more with the mom and pop shops and the local Indian food chains. So, so um, I'm trying to draw a parallel, but, but there, would be, there would be a lot of uh, Indian quick service restaurants, which would be homegrown, and they tend to act a lot faster. So our bigger customers are actually there. McDonald's does use our paper for their bags, uh, but, but that's really it. We don't sell any molded products to them, uh, for example, and similar with uh, people like Burger King and KFC. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that'll be absolutely the direction we would like to go. That's where the difference is going to be made. Our products need to be designed differently. They don't need to be designed. One of my friends called me the other day and he said, you know, there's a big problem. I said, what is the big problem? He said, I, whenever I travel now, I carry your, my our brand is called Chuck uh, and the website is chuck.in, chuck.in. So, so he said, I carry, each time I travel, I just carry a box of Chuck products so that I can eat on wave, you know, if I'm traveling for eight hours by car or whatever. So he said, I have a huge problem. You've designed the product so well that they don't feel like disposable. They don't, I don't feel like throwing them away. So that's a challenge. And he's right. You don't want to design to make you feel good that, you know, the usage is lost. So he said, you have to lightweight it. You have to make it feel like it's a disposable. It's okay to throw it. It looks so good that I want to wipe it and use it again.
so so that's that's where we are we are confused at this stage and we need to get clarity and move towards this whole direction of the core aim of uh, being able to reduce plastics do you find with big companies that sort of i don't know whether they are just genuinely moving slowly or whether they are sort of wanting to get involved for like a publicity stunt sort of involved enough that they can stay there eco without having to actually make sacrifices so bet there's a lot of greenwashing that happens uh but i don't know if how intentional or unintentional it is uh so big com- companies typically typically become much more complex in their way and just just by the way of having so many people and layers and that's the way they have to function i have very high regards for big companies uh as well because just creating as a businessman i know how difficult it is to create something it's very easy to criticize we can all sit in our living rooms and say you know this company is bad and that company is bad and you know so it's but i know how much sweat tears turmoil you know what it took uh, to actually create that you know that that ray crock creating that first restaurant and actually building a system which led to mcdonald's being what it is uh, today or whatever else so so i know it takes a lot of effort and um, and we are all not perfect so so i'm sure there are enough uh, uh, areas in our own my own company where you know we will we will be doing badly and i may have blindfolds to that so so that said so i feel in any way even if they are greenwashing it's a good thing they at least talking about it so at least we are getting there so so you know it takes time it takes evolution to be able to do that although i would also say the earth doesn't have time but then okay it's better than not doing anything so i'm saying what i'm trying to say is that even if it is green washing and there's a lot of that um uh, you know it's good it's at least a step in that direction you're at least thinking about that at least your people are talking about that so it's fine and and of course then you have well intentioned companies within that it's amazing some of the companies some of the big companies like people like starbucks they have good intentions they they want to do good things they may be taking time they may be making the effort but i see so much genuine effort being done expenditure being made patagonia amazing and there's this a variety of huge amount of companies that actually mean what they say and they are actually trying to make effort and there are those who struggle with it they have issues there but i would say greenwashing is better than no washing so so let them let them do what they're doing and it's okay well thank you ved i just wanted to as we're coming to a close um ask you what you would like to be remembered um for at the end of your career what would you like to define you i would say that you know each day uh, what i pray and i think about is how do i leave the earth cleaner and that's a deep question so so it's making me uh, go a little deeper i think all of us are here um and i think that you are you guys are at the right age to be able to think more about this our souls are yearning for something and our souls are typically yearning for meaning at some level uh and meaning provides us with grounding and happiness and everything else that comes in our life uh so for me uh the meaning comes from the idea that if i can leave the earth a little cleaner actually no it it comes from the idea if i can leave the earth totally clean so so that's 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 the direction that i would like to head uh it doesn't honestly matter how i'm remembered so that's where the disconnect is if i do my job if i do my karma and i'm not remembered at all it's fine then i'm remembered a lot 
and uh, I haven't really done the real work. It's greenwashing, as Beth said. So, you know, so if I've greenwashed a lot and I've created a lot of fame and been on a lot of podcasts and done a lot of drama and, uh, and not really resulted in much, that would be a sad life. So I would say real impact. One of my friends once said uh, to me, and it was, I think it's very wise, that he said, you start becoming useful when you stop trying to be famous. So, so, you know, so, so that's important. We have to do real work. We have to create real meaning. So, yeah, so, so I would say if I can work towards leaving the earth cleaner, my life would be well lived at least this time around. That's great. I think Sarah might have told you, but around the end of the episode, you we go for like a rapid fire. Yay, I'm excited and about that. <laughs> kind of put you under pressure to get you to answer really quickly on your feet. The first question I have for you is, if you weren't an entrepreneur, what would you be doing? A naturalist working towards uh, some, some sort of uh, nature-oriented work. Great. Uh, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Find a purpose and live each every each day trying to serve that purpose. Amazing. And how would you describe your career journey in three words? Two words. Totally exciting. Great. And uh, so you've mentioned that Yashpaka is a family-run business. Um, in your opinion, what's a common misconception about working in a family business? It's actually not a family-run business. It is promoted by a family, but it's run by professionals. But uh, coming to your question, uh, it is, uh, it's a right misconception. You have to leave your egos outside the door when you come into a family business. Good. And the final question actually comes in three parts. So the question is, tell me about the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the following words. And I'm going to tell you three words and you have to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Um, plastic. Uh, badly disposed. Nature. Um, blessing. And the final one is mistakes. Great learning. Amazing. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, so we, we, find, we find it's a huge blessing to be able to work with youngsters because uh, what I find is that uh, many of the youngsters that we uh, work with don't come with the conceptions that this cannot be done which is an absolute blessing because the only way we are going to make a difference is by knowing that, you know, there are no, that everything is possible. And that's, that's our main aim. So I find that it's really important for us as an organization and me as a person to work with a lot of young minds. So, so what I would, uh, through this podcast, what I would like to uh, encourage all of you is to so whoever wants to work in this domain connect with us you know let's see what we can do together uh, let's see whatever way we can contribute to your lives you know I'm on LinkedIn and I'm sure uh, you know that's the best probably the best platform to connect with uh, and yeah I'm happy to hear from everybody and uh, look forward to working with some of you whoever sort of listens to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity I'm sure people will be very interested. <laughs> Yay good for us. Amazing. Thank you very much, uh, Vaid. It was really nice having you uh, with you us so today. Definitely really the, one of the best guests at answering the rapid fire questions. <laughs> if you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.